Let's pray together. God, we do thank you so much for this time that we can gather on this campus in a busy season with lots of other things we could be doing tonight. But I thank you that you have brought each and every one of us uh, to this room for a purpose, uh, that you desire to speak to us, to show us who you are in your son, Jesus. So I pray that you would do that tonight as only you can through the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, show us Christ and help us to know how you're calling us to respond. And I pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment uh, an orphan who has grown up in an orphanage in an impoverished condition, uh, incredibly difficult circumstances, uh, barely has enough to get along in life. But this orphan has been adopted by a royal family of a, a small country uh, across the world. And this adoption is legally final. Uh, the adoption papers have gone through. He's been welcomed into this family. And officially, he has all of the resources that go with that new belonging. But at this point, he hasn't yet received that message. He hasn't yet begun to live as if his adoption is really true, as if these resources that really do belong to him are his. It's true of him, but he hasn't begun to experience that reality. The parable that Tim just read for us is full of some pretty, uh, I think, jarring words from Jesus. Uh, words full of warning. Words that call our attention to grim realities like our impending deaths, uh, the, the judgment of God, and even just the, the possibility of a wasted life uh, like that of this rich farmer that we read about. But what I want us to see in the middle of all these warnings is actually an invitation from Jesus to actually experience the treasure and the riches that already belong to everyone who trusts in Christ. And that is offered to you tonight if you're here exploring the claims of the Bible and not sure where you're at in your relationship with God. That we're actually offered a greater treasure and wealth and riches and satisfaction than anything this world offers. And really this parable uh, is about a contrast. It's a contrast between living for the, the worldly treasure that is offered that doesn't last and living in light of the king's treasure, the treasure that God offers to us in Christ. So that's our outline for tonight. You've got it in front of you. If you're interested in taking notes, uh, you won't be asked afterwards about anything. There's no homework, but hopefully you find that helpful as we go from here. So we're going to jump back into that opening section that Tim read before Jesus gives the parable at some point later tonight. But I want to dive into the weeds of this parable and, and unpack some of the details together as we think first about uh, the treasure that the world offers us and that, if we're honest, many of us feel attracted to in some way or another. So the opening verses make it clear that Jesus is warning people against greed or covetousness. He, he told this story 
so that uh, people would not fall into this particular sin. And what is greed and covetousness? It's the desire or the longing for some possession, some resource, uh, whether it be money or otherwise, that God and his good plan has not granted to us. It's an inordinate desire, a desire that has run haywire in one way or another. But even with that in mind, even though we're told on the front end that Jesus is talking about greed and covetousness, I think when we read this parable, at least upon first glance, it's really easy to kind of feel sympathetic for the farmer that Jesus is talking about. It kind of sounds like he's just like making wise financial decisions, that he has uh, gotten a lot more crops than he anticipated. So he's building barns. He's making an investment in his future. So we can read this and be like, is this saying that Jesus is like against 401ks? Like, does he not want us to be planning for our future, whether that's for us or for our children? And even though I, I get that knee-jerk reaction, and I feel that a little bit myself, it's clear that that's not what's going on here. And I think we get a hint at the real problem for this man in the parable and the real problem for you and me in the, one of the dynamics that is repeated again and again in this parable. So I want you to notice how many times you've got the text in front of you, so look at it now. Uh, at the end of the day, what I have to say doesn't matter unless it's rooted in God's word. So we love to keep looking back in what the scriptures say. I want you to notice how many times in this parable the rich man uses the first person pronoun, uh, the word I. In just a few sentences, he uses the word I in kind of an emphatic way five times. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will store all my grain. And I will say to my soul. Now, on top of that, I want you to notice how many times he uses the first person possessive, the word my. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, and my soul. When we pay attention to these details, we see that Jesus doesn't have a beef with wealthy people. In fact, many people that have followed Jesus throughout history or, or trusted in the God of the Bible have been wealthy. I mean, Father Abraham, uh, the father of the faithful, was a very, very rich man. So Jesus isn't telling this parable to convince us that we should forego all private property and like live in a, a hermitage or something like that. He's drawing our attention to this dynamic in our lives that we, when we experience prosperity, in one way or another, there are real dangers that come with that. That the issue is not what we own, what we have. The issue is how we respond to the circumstances of our lives. So uh, I know that y'all are a little bit younger than me, but I imagine most of the people in this room have seen The Lion King, right? The, the classic Disney film, basically a Hamlet uh, rerun. That was for free. Uh, Lion King's a great movie. Towards the beginning of that movie, uh, Simba is singing this song with Zazu. Remember, Zazu's kind of like the annoying bird who's like an advisor for Mufasa, but also kind of a caretaker for Simba. And Simba's singing this song about how he's so excited to be the king one day, right? Like, I just can't wait to be king. Uh, that was also for free. Uh, 
So he's singing this song, and I want you to notice or think for a moment about the, the advantages, the privileges that he's focusing on when he's thinking about this future idea of being the king. This is what he says. He says, no one is saying do this. No one's saying be there. No one's saying stop that. No one's saying see here. Uh, maybe you can hear the, the melody and you're probably glad I'm not continuing to sing. His understanding of what it means to be king is all wrapped around freedom from obligation, freedom from insecurity, freedom from the, the powerlessness that he feels as uh, a child lion in, in the pride, right? And he's actually a lot like the rich fool in our parable, who having received these resources from God, sees them as an avenue, a tool for him to be freed from obligation to other people instead of something that he can be used to be freed towards serving and loving God and others. And we're going to come back to that idea in a little bit. We see that this is his attitude when he talks about his riches being laid up for himself so that he can relax and eat and drink and be merry. Uh, my guess is many of you came to the University of Illinois with future opportunities in mind. Whether that was uh, the opportunity to escape from something in your past, a, a difficult childhood, a difficult family situation, or the opportunity to establish some secure, flourishing future for yourself through a meaningful career that fits your gifts down the line. And I don't think you were wrong to have those desires or to have those goals. But I think we people at the University of Illinois need to ask ourselves, are we actually in our hearts a lot like Simba and like this rich young fool? Are we after these opportunities? Are we pursuing them so that we can secure something for ourselves? whether that is wealth or freedom from obligation, freedom from insecurity, freedom from the need to depend on other people. Or if we're really honest, it can be freedom from the need to depend on God. So this man's focus on I, 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 and my, 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 it demonstrates at least three failures on his part to recognize important realities about the kingdom of God. Remember, the parables are all showing us something about God's kingdom. And this man's self-focus shows ways that he's missing it. And I think they also offer us hints about ways that we can miss it in our own lives. So the first failure is that he doesn't really understand who he is and his condition. He doesn't live as if the day of his death is coming. Uh, we know that that's true because of the way that God responds to him at the end of this parable. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And I'm not sure if there's a season of life when it is easier to live as if you will never die than in your college years. Um, I'm not bringing this up to be somber on purpose or for its own sake. But it's so easy on a campus like this, so full of energy and potential and distractions and all sorts of good things to focus on to forget that the day is coming for each of us when we will die. And I wonder, what does it look like for us to live today, live this week in light of that 
impending certainty. I've always found it uh, ironic and also kind of beautiful that on the south side of our campus, uh, just west of Far Par and north of kind of the Kirby, Florida line, there's a really big cemetery. That adjoining a campus that represents bustling life is a cemetery. It's also called Mount Hope, which I think is pretty beautiful because of the hope of the resurrection. But what does it look like for you in college in this season of your life to live today, not grimly or in despair, but knowing that your days are limited, your breath is limited? What does it look like for you to spend that well for God's glory and his kingdom? That's the first failure of this man. He failed to see his own mortality, to understand himself. The second failure is he failed to remember his neighbor. He's so focused on himself that he fails to use his wealth to serve other people and to meet needs in his community. That seems pretty obvious just from the self-focus and Jesus's uh, condemnation at the beginning of greed and covetousness. But in the next section of Luke, Jesus actually goes on to talk about using our wealth to love and serve other people, that disciples of Christ actually ought to be willing to sell what they have to give to the needy. And this man is clearly not doing that. And we need to ask ourselves, not necessarily is God calling me to sell everything I have and, and give it away, but what are the things in your life that are more important to you than the people that God has put in your spheres of influence? We have a saying in our home that we tell my son Judah, who is running around here earlier, uh, we, we say this to him all the time, especially when he's frustrated that Ellis has like broken down something he made. Uh, we tell him people are more important than things. And yet I really struggle to live like that is true, uh, that, that people are more important than things. Well, the final failure of this rich fool that I think many of us struggle with as well is, is the worst of them all. And it is that he has failed to recognize God. He's talking about my barn, my grain, my plans for the future. And there's no indication that he thanked God for his provision, that he glorified him for the crops that God enabled to be produced. He has forgotten God. And before we pivot to the more encouraging part of our message tonight, I want to mention one more uh, aspect about this parable that a, a commentator, a student of this passage brought to my attention. Because it's possible that some of us in the room are kind of feeling like, honestly, Ethan, I know I got stuff. I know I'm a sinner, but money's not really my thing. Like, I'm, I'm not that concerned about, like, getting really wealthy. And if that's you, like, great, that's cool. Uh, but this is, listen to what this commentator says. He says, this parable does not just stand for those who are materially rich, but for those who take no thought for God. For those who take no thought for God. What he's saying is it's possible for you to be rich and to forget God because of it. But it's also possible to be poor or to be middle class or whatever your material situation is and to forget God. Do you remember the God who made you and loves you and has given you everything you have? Does your life reflect that daily remembrance of him? 
having riches or not having riches isn't the issue. Uh, the issue at hand is, as Jesus shows us, how we respond to these riches. Because how we respond to them, how we steward the things that God has given us, demonstrates what our hearts really treasure. So I want to turn now and think about uh, this lasting treasure, uh, the king's treasure that is offered to us in Jesus. Because again, Jesus's intent is not just to like make us feel bad, but to warn us about the allure of living for the things of this world so that he can draw our eyes to a treasure that is far more lasting and far more satisfying. And in verse 21, Jesus really drives home the big point of this parable. Uh, it's not that being rich towards yourself is a bad thing, but it's if, if you're rich in this world and you failed to be rich towards God, then it's an utter waste. Uh, you're a fool. Uh, and, and we will even be in danger of hearing words like these from God at the last day. Fool, tonight your soul is required of you. But the good news is for those who trust in Jesus, an alternative voice from God is offered to us that we can hear God say to us, not fool, but well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And I want to draw your attention to just one other detail in this parable. In verse 15, uh, Jesus says that one's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. And that word life is a helpful marker for us for what Jesus is talking about. Because there are two words in the Greek language for life. Uh, there's bios, from which we get like biology, right? The study of life. And there's zoe, uh, from which we get the name zoe, coincidentally. Bios is not a bad thing, but it's talking about just like ordinary physical life. Uh, the, the things that we need to survive. In the Bible, zoe is spiritual life. It's lasting life. It's the eternal life that Jesus came to bring. And Jesus is saying that kind of life can't be found. It doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. So with that in mind, we need to ask, and this is really the question we're going to focus on for the next little while before we wrap up. What does it actually mean to be rich toward God? as Jesus is talking about here. What does it mean to be rich towards God? Well, I think in the broader context of Jesus's teaching, it becomes clear that he's talking about spiritual riches, riches that are offered to us. Ultimately, we will see purchased for us by him in his life and death and resurrection. Things like forgiveness of our sins, peace with God, hope in this life, eternal life to come when Jesus returns and brings heaven down to earth. Uh, these are the, the spiritual riches, the riches towards God that are being talked about here. And that's really good news, right? That in and of itself, like these are things that cannot be taken away from us that are of far greater value than anything that this world offers. But we need to add something on top of that. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, we see there that God is describing his people. And he's using lots of different 
terms that are found in the Old Testament to describe the church, to describe the family of God, the people that belong to him through faith in Jesus. And one of the terms that he uses there, that God uses about us, is his special possession. Or his special possession. We're like a treasure, a gem, a, a super valuable item that a king would keep close to his chest or, or locked in a place where no one could get to it. It's the thing that he prizes above all else. And that's how we are described in our relationship to God. He treasures us and values us that much that he wants to pull us close and he's willing to send his son to a bloody death to accomplish just that, to make us his special possession. So the king's treasure, in a sense, in this parable is us. It's amazing that God would, would choose to treasure us in that way, unworthy as we are. And when we see this, when we see the riches that Jesus offers us, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, the ability to live a holy and life full of purpose, all these riches, and on top of that, the fact that God actually treasures us, that he loves us, that reality, when we experience it, it changes the way that we relate to our worldly treasures. And I think the word here that stands out to me that I've used already that's, that's really helpful for the way that God's calling us to respond is this idea of stewardship. So maybe you've heard that word before, but a steward uh, is a servant who is in charge of managing or overseeing some piece of a master's estate, uh, some, something that doesn't belong to them. But they're in charge of making sure that that thing flourishes, that it grows uh, for the sake of the master. And that is what Jesus is calling us to here. When we become convinced that we are God's treasure and that we can treasure him in return, that he himself is the greatest thing, the thing that will satisfy us more than all else, then we can actually turn to the resources in our lives and see them as things not to serve ourselves, but knowing that we've received everything from God in Christ, we can then seek to steward them to bless other people. And the issue here, the thing that's actually going to free us to get there, to get to the point where we can use the resources we have to serve others, is that we really need to be convinced that God has offered us everything that we need in Christ. And the issue isn't that our desires for the things of this world are too strong. Uh, C.S. Lewis actually talks about this in one of his books, that the issue is not our desires are too strong, but that they're too weak. That we're not desiring the things that we should desire that actually bring us greater pleasure and significance. And he uses this image of a child who's like playing in the mud in his backyard. And he's kind of content with that. And he doesn't want anything else. But what he doesn't know, he's, he's been offered a chance to go on a holiday to the sea or in American lingo, like a vacation to the ocean. Like he's settling for this mud pie when a vacation at the sea is offered to him. So do, are you doing that in your life? Are you settling for treasuring and valuing and delighting in the things of this world? a little mud pie, when the, the vacation at the sea, delight in God, treasuring him above all else, that is what 
is offered to us. So I want to offer, as we prepare to wrap up, uh, just like two concrete practical takeaways as to if, if we really know that God treasures us and that that frees us to treasure him above all else, what does that look like in our lives? And I want to give you one short-term takeaway and one that's a little more long-term down the road. Here's the short-term one. I recognize that most of you in the room are probably not sitting on exorbitant amounts of discretionary income in this season of your life, right? Uh, Your issue in this season, uh, we might have hearts that long for it, but your issue is probably not that you're like blowing a ton of money on yourself, right? So what, what are the resources that God has given you that you have an opportunity to steward for his glory and for the good of others in this season? Uh, there's probably lots of good answers to that, but I want to argue that one of your greatest resources you can use in light of God's kingdom and God's economy, because he treasures you, is your attention. Think of for a moment about the language that we use. We talk about paying attention to someone. Paying attention. It's almost as if we recognize in the way that we talk that our attention is a resource. And it's something that when we're paying attention to someone, we're not paying attention to someone else. Even though we try to be focused on multiple things at once, we live in such a distracted society. It's not enough these days, and I'm, I'm putting myself under uh, this condemnation as I say this. It's not enough these days for us to be distracted by one big screen with like a Netflix show on. What do we do nine times out of 10? We're watching this and we're also scrolling on our Instagram on our smaller screen, right? We're so distracted, but we all crave attention. Now, doesn't it hurt when someone you want attention from doesn't give it to you. God made us to need attention. And the good news is that God who sees everything actually offers to us in Jesus all of the attention that we need. And that can free us then when we know that treasure that's offered to us, the attention of God, that can free us to really pay attention to other people in our lives. Even the people that if we're honest, we don't want to spend a ton of time with. We can ask them good questions. We can put our phones away. We can focus on them and not necessarily expect something in return. I heard this quote once from a Russian priest named uh, Father Alexander Elkanonov. Say that five times fast. Uh, And he said that true spirituality is not being exacting towards your neighbor. True spirituality is not being exacting towards your neighbor. What does he mean? If you really want to show people what the heart of Jesus is like, don't demand from them payment back for the ways that you have served and loved them. You can pay attention to people and love them well, even if it doesn't advance your networking goals for the semester or you don't find it particularly enthralling to be in a conversation with them. The gospel can free us to be those kinds of people. Here's the last thing before we wrap up. Long-term application. The day is coming for most of you, most likely, when you will make more money than you are making right now. You're like, amen. Let's, Let's hear more of that. 
That day is coming. So what does it look like for you now to be experiencing the treasure that Jesus is for you in a way that's preparing you for those moments? And I want to borrow a little bit and paraphrase from the famous Methodist preacher, uh, John Wesley, who argued basically to the effect that when we experience more prosperity in our lives, it shouldn't be that our first thoughts go to increasing our standard of living. Our first impulse, our heart should be, how can we increase our standard of giving? That doesn't mean having a house is bad. Uh, We own a home in Urbana, and I'm so grateful to God for it. It doesn't mean having nice things is bad. But what would it look like for you to have a heart that treasures Jesus so much that you hold your possessions loosely and that you're willing to give generously down the line, certainly like to the church, I think tithing is a good thing, uh, but also giving of your resources, whatever they may be, to meet the needs of others. As we prepare to close, I mentioned that we would jump back to um, the beginning of this section we read, even before the parable was read. And I want us to think for just a moment about what it was that prompted this parable from Jesus. This man comes to Jesus and he basically asks him to settle a family dispute. He says, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. Sounds like a pretty simple request. But Jesus' response is striking. He says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now hear this. Jesus is not saying I'm not a judge and an arbitrator. Because the rest of the scriptures make it clear that he is. That there's a day coming when every living person who has ever walked the face of this earth, resurrected from the dead, will face judgment and Jesus will be the judge on the throne. He is a judge. He's just not the kind of judge this man's looking for. He's also an arbitrator or a mediator. The Bible describes Jesus not as settling family disputes, but setting a dispute between the holy God who made all things and sinful rebels who have run away from home and have broken his law. So here's the point I want you to see. The thing that prompted this parable about greed and covetousness and money was missing who Jesus really is. So the way to grow as people that want to be stewarding our lives well so that we don't waste them and be like this rich fool is to see who Jesus really is. Every way that we can possibly grow in our Christian lives flows out of seeing who Jesus is. So hear these words from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, about Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We sang in our second song earlier that Jesus left a throne of glory to go to a cradle in the dirt. He's given up everything to make us his treasure and to free us to use our worldly treasures for his glory and to draw others' eyes to the riches that are found in Christ that we can know now through faith in Jesus and will experience forever and ever in the life to come. Would you please pray with me? Jesus, we do thank you for this reminder from your word 
this warning from you. Uh, We hear it, Lord, as a warning in love, a severe mercy, that you, out of your kindness, would draw our eyes upward from the things of this world, things which can be good gifts and can be received with grateful hearts but can never satisfy our souls. I pray that as we continue to worship you now and as we go out from here and live the lives you're calling us to live on this campus, that we would know that we are treasured by you and that you offer your very self to us, that we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, that there is nothing we desire in heaven or on earth besides you. We can say with David that in your presence is fullness of joy. Would you make this true for us, not just in our minds, but in our hearts and our lives. We pray this for your glory. Amen.